Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Dave Gello. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. Uh, so for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, you want to tell us a little bit uh, about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I would say I'm a hacker and an entrepreneur, uh, primarily. So I really love to build things and tinker. Uh, I do a lot of R&D development and, you know, hacking things, basically. Um, and uh, actually, I'm, I'm also an entrepreneur. So I've started um, my fourth company lately. Uh, we make software videos easy and solve the problem of uh, video debt that occurs when you make <laughs> software videos, right? So uh, that's kind of a, just a bit about what I'm what I'm up to right now. This is my my newest company, and it's uh, it's starting to take off. So uh, yeah, that's a bit about me. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I saw a little bit of the the demos that you shared. Um, it's really cool that you are tackling such a, a hard, challenging, technical problem. Uh, so when you when you started Vidiate, like the idea was it was just you and you you were solving all those problems yourself or did you try and like recruit a team how did you how did you get going yeah so um you know uh after my time at my last company video amp another video company um, i took a sabbatical for a while and got a little bored just staring at the walls and so i started doing a lot of r&d development and i did that for I don't know, around a year or so um, before I met my co-founder, who is a really uh, connected, uh, also a geek, actually, an MIT grad at that. Uh, but he was a CEO of, a, of an XML single source authoring company for training and just kind of happens to know everybody in the industry already and stuff. So I found a really great hustler um, and he's a really good component to a lot of my hack. So basically between the two of us, uh, that's how we managed to get a lot of customer development done this year. And with some very big companies, you know, companies may be powering people listening to this podcast or whatever, you know, the internet, if you will. So, um, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey uh, once I found my co-founder, Mark. Nice. And so, so it sounds like you've been handling a lot of the, uh, the development. Um, how do you, when, when thinking about like a large, larger project like this, in the sense that you are, you're building the the technology for a company like how do you how do you start that how do you think about that like how do you avoid going down i don't know dead ends or yeah just can you share a little bit about your perspective about starting something big like that yeah absolutely so uh in my opinion it's about knowing what corners to cut and when um some people get a little too wrapped up in the orthodoxy of things uh and Maybe that's just because of the size of companies they're at or whatever. But at least in early stage companies, you really have to cut a lot of corners. Like if you were to write really robust tests and all these things really, really early on when you're just uh, designing a product or doing customer development, what you find is you throw a lot of that away. So we call that thrash. And so um, mm -hmm. I particularly like that stage. I thrive in that sort of, if you will, chaos. Not that I like writing a debris field of, of work. But there is something to that and then coalescing and you go through refinement and you continually, it's like cleaning out your garage, you know, you're getting rid of the cruft uh, and sort of solidifying and making more robust. And that's kind of the phase I'm at with my company. It's not just myself anymore. We have more and more people and now we're layering on testing everywhere now that we know kind of what it is our product does, right? 
And so to me, it's like knowing what corners you can cut and at what stage and when is, is, is it acceptable? Um, so that's kind of like the, the challenges I see it. Nice. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's like an outlook that that's pretty important. It sounds like something that you're very familiar with. If this is your, uh, I think you said you're like fourth, uh, company that, that you've started, um, especially with that, that technical role. I mean, part of the reason why I'm asking, and, and I think it's a little bit different if it's, if you know, it's a company versus, uh, like a smaller project, but I feel like there's, there's definitely a lot in common. And I think, um, people I know in the junior to senior community, uh, some of them have come to me saying that they, they don't really know how to get started. Right. They, they, they know they want to work on a project. They know that they, there's all of these things that they could do, but they, they have trouble deciding what paths to go down or they, they have trouble thinking about how to get started. Um, do you ever have like those types of issues or like, do you like, do you have a pretty good sense of, of how to get over those types of obstacles? Yeah, well, it's a good question. So the way I look at it, um, in, in my uh, history hacking um, with web technology, particularly, I look at it as applied learning. So at every step through the process, when I was learning HTML and like literally typing it into a terminal or whatever, there was always some extra goal, um, whatever it was. Uh, for me, I'm a drummer, so I was in the music community. So I might have been doing websites for bands or album uh, preprint for CDs or shirts and graphics and all this right so for me it was applied learning it was to get that stuff on the web or whatever um and all the way through my career i've really tried to keep the learning applied um and it also i mean it's another tangent conversation but it goes into how you build orgs and make people make sure that people have that same opportunity while they're there working with you and for your company um but applied learning to me um in the in sense of growth with engineers at companies is aligning the outcomes. And if someone's like, I want to get better at Scala or Golang or Rust or whatever, and like the company wants that or needs it, you know? So to me, as mm -hmm. long as you can make the, the learning relevant and applied, it can even work into your career growth and all the way through. So, um, uh, but, but yeah, I don't think I've ever worked or hacked on anything that I didn't think was fun or interesting first. And then, the the building the project thing was just the means to the end you know to try and make it work if that makes sense mm. yeah absolutely so. yeah it sounds like that's kind of been a big big part of uh what's made you successful i mean would you say that that's um i mean is that would you say that that's the skill that that's helped you uh the most throughout your career or there are other other skills that that have been important i i would actually um call it something a little different. Actually, I, I call it, well, I, I used to call it bullshito, but I've, I learned that that was a, a word in martial arts to make fun of like bad martial arts forms or whatever. <laughs> but instead of bushido, which is like Japanese warrior spirit, you have uh, bullshito, which is bulldog nature warrior spirit. That's what it used to mean for me, but that's what it is. It's perseverance. Uh, and it's like, uh, it's a type of drive like just never, ever giving up. Like I almost bragged forever that like I, there wasn't one bug I never could chase down ever, mm. even though some took me four weeks or four months. And with the case of the R&D for my current company, there's some bugs that took me a year to figure out, right? <laughs> you know, so, but but there's the perseverance factor. I think that it trumps all those other things. Uh, just like, you know, of course you have to have applied learning. You have to love what you're doing, uh, but it's the drive. And um 
Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I sum it up. It's just, uh, if you love what you're doing, that drive just, they, they, they kind of co- coexist together, right? Like they, they function together. Yeah. That's awesome. It makes me think of, um, uh, I guess this book that, that became very popular, like grit, the power of passion and perseverance. It seemed to have really popularized that, that, like you said, that perseverance, is that something when you build teams, is that something that that's important to you when looking to, to hire engineers? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way we jokingly would talk about it is, um, you know, you don't want folks whose seats are spinning at 4.59 p.m. because they're out the door or whatever. And you want people, <laughs> right, <laughs> who love their work enough that they're they're there. But also, uh, but in seat time, as the CFO might say, doesn't always cut it either. You know, it's really about impact. And especially even before we had COVID, uh, like with my last company, VideoWeb, we had a pretty big engineering org by the time I left. And you had people... Um, with very flexible schedules, working different times of the day and night, even before COVID and stuff. And so, um, you know, what that means these days is not but in chair time, it's just more about people's general effectiveness. And, um, but that's like, that's like a baseline, right? You want people to be stoked enough about their work. Again, kind of going back to what I said a little earlier, like if at work, they're challenged outside of, you know, actually, let me put it this way. My goal is to build these environments where, um, people are challenged outside of their comfort zone. They achieve magnitude level growth during their time at the company. They have the opportunity to do the coolest stuff in their career. And then they're worth more in the marketplace um, during their time and afterwards. Right. And it's like actually a really huge compliment to have somebody go to another company and then you touch base with them and they're like, yeah, they're wondering why I learned all this stuff. And it was like with you guys, you know, so the idea I've always been very engineering first um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of interesting now in my newest company too, because I, I am hiring a VP of engineering and I'm giving all of the org away, you know, actually. Mm-hmm. So in terms of engineering first orgs, it's where um, I believe the the health and the growth of that person is taken into regard by the company. And in fact, that's what um, I did about a year ago with uh, 20 people. I interviewed CTOs and VPs of engineering in a podcast. And we talked about that exact thing. How do you ensure while people are there that you take care of their growth and their overall career path? Cause it's longer than their time with you, you know? And so it was really interesting to get all those different responses back. And I, I'd say I learned a lot from that. Um, but, but where I'm at in my own stage is now giving away an org like that and getting another leader to want to build an engineering first, another engineering first company like that, you know? Yeah, totally. So it's, <clears throat> to to I brought up a number of really good points there. So it sounds like there's like this this um this passion and the motivation, this like this drive that really I guess would help that that perseverance. The like you said, the like the what did you call it? The learning? Yeah, the applied learning. Um combined with that that perseverance is really important too. Uh and that because those those feed off of each other. Uh, what I'm curious about is that are those things like innate? Um, do you feel like some people have them or are those cultivated skills that you've seen um, engineers develop over time? Yeah, great question. Like a nature versus nurture kind of thing. Let me put it this way. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, this is an interesting experiment. So um, I, I used to volunteer time speaking at coding school graduations. Um, sort of like the same thing you were saying earlier with um, career development and stuff. I don't think enough career development's given in college as well in all kinds of places. So 
wherever you can get it, it's great. So I would talk to these coding school grads and essentially I, I, I would tell them essentially, sorry, I'm like my company, we're not hiring them right now. We're so early stage. We're only hiring people with like 10, 15 years of experience, like super early on. Uh, but then eventually I came around to hiring a few from coding schools. Uh, and these are folks that had like a law degree or a teaching degree, you know, like they had other careers, some of them, but then they got into coding and then they graduated and started working um, with my, my company. Um, and amazingly, uh, a lot of those folks are still around. They've gone three, four, five years now. Some are like directors of engineering already. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like they, they, some incredibly amazed me and they're young too. Like some people got to a director level, like right before their thirties and they were just awesome subject matter experts, et cetera. So from that same cohort where earlier on, I'm like, sorry, I don't hire from this yet. I can't, uh, to then growing to be a big enough company where you had to, just to make your head count. I mean, you're a lot of people, right. And, uh, uh, but through those ranks, some people, have the drive and they just, they, they, I don't know, everybody gets it from a different place. Basically. I don't know where it comes from, but I've seen it mm-hmm. and I've seen people, um, excel as big as, as they can at your company. And sometimes people, uh, um, they excel more than your company can provide. And then they go and work somewhere else and you give them a big party when they go away. You know, it's like, you know, it's kind of the Netflix <laughs> yeah. manifesto, right? Like <laughs> we'll throw you a party on the way out if we can't help you grow in your career kind of thing. So, um, but that's how I've seen that um, sort of the, the nature versus nurture. Um, <clears throat> it's incumbent upon the company to be able to do that. And if, you know, you're having financial trouble or, you know, extenuating circumstances, et cetera, um, you know, that's where it cuts into it, of course. But um, but yeah, that's uh, it, it does really start with the environment, in my opinion, like how you see okay. that growth happen. Yeah, I, the reason why I'm asking, I'm just I'm trying to like for, for the people listening, right, for for our listeners um, like I'm trying to put myself in, in someone's shoes who's listening. Like, like if they don't, they don't feel like they have the motivation or, or that desire for applied learning, or they feel like it's very difficult for them to persevere in the face of, you know, bugs. Like they're not going to chase down a bug for, for a year. That's just not something <laughs> that they feel they they can do. Like, is, is this industry not for them? Or would you say like, oh, no, no, that it, like it, it just takes time and here's the way that you would cultivate those, those qualities. Yeah. Look, nothing ever came natural. Um, I would say, um, well, okay. There's a lot to unpack there actually. So on the one hand, there's even a lot of careers you can go into just knowing the tech, right? So maybe you do go programming for five years and you're like, you know what? I like product better. So that's Mm -hmm. another thing with companies is that you allow people to lateral in their own career. And I've seen people jump from uh, just a, a career, a, a pure engineering pathing, if you will, over to something managerial, actually, in the same regard, or people that go to product. And in fact, knowing product, how to design products well, and software engineering in the lifecycle process is equally as valuable for companies. So there's actually a lot of laterals in career pathing people don't realize, especially just jumping into it uh, without talking to enough people that may have been through them or um, just types of orgs where that's possible. And you kind of have to do that. People get bored. Nobody wants to do the same thing year over year uh, or even really quarter over quarter or, or whatnot, you know? So if you give people the ability to lateral, that's a, that's a big part of it. But, um, but going back to your original thing, yeah, some, some software engineering is really tough. It's rigorous. You know, you, it's like 
it's only only perfect is allowed you know like at least <laughs> your code running you know what i mean it's gonna have bugs i guess but but um you know i it's uh, i'm not sure how to how to better coach people around that other than just just like a fact of life just like naming things and programming is you know <laughs> so mm-hmm. Gotcha. I do want to go back to to one thing you said before, um, because I, I think it's a very common sentiment among hiring managers. You you wanted to avoid hiring bootcamp grads, junior developers, and ultimately you you changed your mind um, either because you saw uh, success or it was a requirement um, just based on headcount needs. But can you think back to to or maybe you you, you know like. What goes into like why do hiring managers think that way? Um, like, what's the what's the reasoning for for not wanting junior devs or bootcamp grads? Sure, um, I would say it's probably the shape and size of the company first and foremost. Um, so I don't, uh, yeah. So think of it this way: a lot of the bootcamp grads might go off to Facebook or do internships at very big companies which is something I would always recommend to, to people starting their careers, go cut your teeth at a big company, see how it works, like learn the life cycle process, like learn everything you can, et cetera. Right. And see if that's for you. Um, experience a lot of different company sizes, you know? And so uh, it's just that think of it this way. If you're a very early stage startup, um, uh, you need people who can run with really vague instructions and do a whole lot of stuff. And they just have made a lot of decisions already in their career. And you're, you're basing off of the multiplier effect of a bunch of people that are specialists, but working together with that level of career experience. It's like a make or break, in my opinion, for terminal velocity. Um, and I've seen it work in a number of teams before. So that's kind of the approach right now. Uh, it's just to have people. I mean, it's great to have um, those that are all in and stuff, too. But it's just like the the, the number of like breadth. The number of expertise and breadth is really uh, uh, an important requ- requirement, in my opinion, in the early stage. Um, as you're growing, you certainly want a, a number of level of people, um, and every single person should be on their own uh, personal uh, development and growth path, no matter what level they are in the whole company. So that's kind of how I see it. Everybody's uh, on a continuous improvement path, even at an organizational level as well. You know, it's looking at itself, seeing how to correct, how to do things better, et cetera. And, um, so that's kind of how I see a, a good, healthy functioning org, uh, both at an individual and organizational level. Gotcha. Yeah, that's helpful. The um, the reason why I'm asking is just we're going to, you know, we've got uh, junior developers, bootcamp grads in the audience. And I think one thing that I hear a lot is is it's very discouraging for them to to see a lot of companies not interested in, in hiring engineers at their level. And so it's it's helpful to to give a little bit of context of what, hiring managers are thinking um in you know so, that perspective on the other side i i could add to that uh in that like when when you're um i've interviewed a lot of folks right um uh, and i've been on the other side of the table a lot of times i've interviewed about 120 times in my career and um i'm actually writing uh sort of a book about it called hustling for hackers because basically it's about both sides of the table i've interviewed about 120 times at a lot of different companies when I didn't need the job basically, but I was like interviewing the companies in my area to see what they would be like to work mm-hmm. with. So uh, you have to treat it as much as you're interviewing the company as they're interviewing you. That's thing one as a job seeker, right? Um, 
but also uh, from the other side of the table and being a very engineering oriented kind of person, I love to talk the shop and hear about the tech. So with, with any candidate, I try and let them talk as much as possible, especially to make them comfortable. And if, even if they're introverted, uh, if they can talk for, excuse me, I mean, if they can talk for, you know, hours about tech, then that's what I care about. They, they may be an introverted person, but um, so to me, I felt it very successful to just open up the interview and let people talk. Now, if, um, you know, you could speak at length about the things you did, like in coding school or whatever, or what you learned, or kind of how some of those team dynamics went down, like when the stuff hit the fan, who actually stepped up and did the work, like there's all kinds of stories that come out from it. And I'm really always interested in people's experience if that's where they're coming from and going to. Um, but also those same stories exist within companies they might've worked at too, you know? It's, um, so um, my, my biggest thing, and, and that's like also, I guess, looking for passion is like, if someone can talk your ear off about something, the coolest thing they've done in the past year, like I want to probably talk to that person some more and I can mm -hmm. share mine with them. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm the same way. I'm still hacking things. Um, and I like people that are like-minded in that regard. They love what they do. And they could just talk at least about the work they do, even if they're introverted. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So like what would be, yeah. So, okay. So if that's the, a really good interview, what's uh, like, have you had, I mean, I'm sure you've had like, what, what's a, what's a really bad interview? Like what should our listeners be sure to avoid? Mm. It's funny you ask that. I asked, I asked the same question of uh, hiring engineering managers. So I asked mm. this of them in the wildcard round, right? Um, so it's a good one. I like this. Um, there's a lot. So, uh, I mean, the worst is when people just didn't do their homework beforehand. And it could be within my own org or my company, like where someone's in the room that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, and actually, we've debated, like, what do you do here? Do you pretend for two hours that they're a candidate? Or do you tell them in the first 10, 15 minutes um, that they're, they're in the wrong room? Or actually, mm -hmm. more often than us messing up and ha that happening, the candidate found themselves in the wrong room, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they couldn't make it through the beginning whiteboarding of like, I don't know, you pick the subject, right? So um, that's another reason, right? And it's the same thing. But the politest thing to do is to just miss early. You know, it's like, hey, sorry, like, you need to know a lot about Scala, like, to mm -hmm. be here. You know, something like that. That's happened uh, plenty of times, actually. Because sometimes you'll have a team who's super tough, right? Because it's that team that's doing the hiring, actually. It's not just a authoritative sort of thing. It's a committee, right? Yeah, it's not, um, not purely top 10. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, yeah, it's it's everybody's pretty much thumbs up all around before someone gets an offer. You know, like everybody has to be bought into a candidate, generally speaking. Um, but um, so uh, the more and more awkward ones are people who just may be um, just peculiar with their you know, personality or whatever. And they may think they're joking with you and you take it the wrong way. Like people who are like, you know, I never write any software with any bugs or, you know, it's <laughs> functional programming. It's impossible. Or my code's turning complete or whatever. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. So um, you get some people who are just slightly over arrogant by accident or they just don't know it or whatever. But um, those can be awkward. Um, um, people wanting to bring their framework into use at your company. That's actually been a theme, uh, believe it or not. In the interview? Um, well, kind of in that, like you ask them point blank, like, would you 
be happy working here if you didn't get to work on your framework here or whatever, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, put their feet up on the table or whatever. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. Literally, I've had all kinds of weird interviews, you know, with people wanting to, you know, there's some ulterior thing going on. Um, the other thing that's really tough is, uh, you know, people who are good lone wolves, uh, but they really don't um, play well in teams. And that's really mm-hmm. hard because, you get all kinds of other issues, it kind of becomes cancerous. It's like you get, we've literally had people almost step out into the alleyway behind the building, you know, to settle their differences, you know, and it's like, you can't have that in a company. Ooh, so, yeah, not um, good. Y- yeah, right. And it's, it's literally often because one person is a lone wolf and they often, they're kind of like the intelligent asshole, sorry, if you will, which is someone who is brilliant, but they don't mix well with others and they're kind of egotistical or there's something else going on. And as good as their work is, it's like detrimental to your group. So they still have to go basically, you know? So I'm, I'm talking like after now the interview process, obviously. But, I mean, are you look, but you're looking for those types of qualities in the interview now. Oh yeah. You try and yeah. spot it yeah. down the road, like for better or worse, good traits and bad. Right. And some things you just can't know. Sometimes you have people that work for you for five years and just suddenly quit or whatever, you know, it's like stuff mm-hmm. happens. Well, people. people change as well. Yeah. yeah people aren't happens. static. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I so I'm trying to think like so for for someone someone who's listening, right? Like like what what can they do? And so a word that that I heard you you say that really stuck out to me that that it just that you said in the beginning that that I think you showed that it was going to go to interpersonal was the the word awkward. And I think that's probably like I can imagine somebody listening and thinking like, "Oh, man, I, you know, I don't want to be awkward. Like, how do I know? Or like, how do I get better at that? Like, like, is that, is that something like, is that just, you know, something that you get through practice? Like you just go through interviews, you get more natural and that awkwardness, uh, fades away. You just sort of learn not to make jokes or, or, you know, like you said, like, oh no, my software doesn't have bugs. Like it's all functional. So it's always perfect. Like, is that something that just fades away naturally or is there something they can do? No, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about filtering yourself at that level. Um, you know, I mean, in the end, you're, we're all just people and the way you get across to others, at least your peers personally is kind of what matters in, in this situation. And um, you'll find that there, a lot of people are, are basically geeks are all the same in some respects. Like there's a, a type of different culture, you know, among geeks basically. Um, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Part of me wonders if it's, um, you know, you, you, you may just want to worry about that less and not try to, it's like not try to ace every interview, not really try and like conform too much to the particular company that you're, you're interviewing with, but, you know, try and be a little bit more natural and to the extent that maybe if you are a little quirky, let that come through. And then when, when it is the right fit, um, it'll, it'll click a lot more. Like you mentioned like lone wolf, um, not being a good fit for the, for the teams that you've been on. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think in, in larger orgs or orgs that are structured with, with teams that require a lot of cooperation interaction, that could be bad. Do you think that there, there are places for, for lone wolves and companies where that's actually an asset? Yeah. R and D probably. <clears throat> Uh, yeah. So, um, just as a start, but you know, um, 
I don't know. It's hard to find a place in a company where people don't still interact though. You know what I'm saying? But, um, but yeah, I mean, part of, part of that characteristic I would say a lone wolf has is that they're very autonomous and they do many things. Maybe they're like full, full, full stacker or whatever. Um, you know, I, I've actually worked with folks that I'm still great friends with, but they, they're like poker players with their knowledge too. Um, like they keep their cards close to their chest on some of the coolest techie stuff. And mm. those, I mean, they're still my friends, but they're, they're literally good poker players too. And it's like some <laughs> people don't share much, even though, you know what I mean? So I've always liked the opposite people who are like playing their cards face up or even like, you know, sharing with you the today I learned kind of content, you know, stuff like that. So, um, you know, but as you get into bigger and bigger orgs, people cooperate less basically. And the teams, you know, it's like you get such a big mix of people. It doesn't necessarily happen that way in reality. It's just mm-hmm. there's competition in organizations and for people to move up and there's, op, you know, optics and perception and all kinds of other things come into play. But at a pure sense, it, I, I like working around and building teams of people who are those face up kind of card players, if you will. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so I mean, the motivation for for keeping keeping those cards not face up, that's like you're thinking that's like competition, more like political. Like, like is that the why people do it? Yeah, I mean, it, it it's I call it like status jockeying too. Mm. It's like where people put a lot more into the efforts of their optics in an org than the actual stuff they do. Um, mm-hmm. Or worse off, they find out ways to take credit for other people's work and inside of a bigger org, and it gets kind of all mushy and stuff like that. So, the further away from that we get at a team level, I think the, the more productive and you know d- down to uh, efficiency we, you are. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that's the there's um I'm gonna, I'm not going to remember it exactly, but there's a uh, when people say that they don't like politics or, or they don't like things getting political, um, there's a specific definition of that. That's usually what people mean, where it's where the the actions, um, it's where the actions are more about how they're perceived instead of the 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 real output of the action. And it kind of sounds like that's a little bit about uh, sort of what you're getting at where it's less about what they're doing and and more about how what they're doing is perceived. Um, and yeah, that's not a good, uh, I don't think that's like a, a type of thing that most people like. And so I, I think it's it's good to stay away from that. In fact, um, I'd be curious to to hear what, what you think about um, this, but a theme on this show has been as, as you get more senior, you're expected to have a larger and larger impact on those around you. So even if you are an individual contributor, you are still expected to be creating tools, um, writing, uh, I guess, guides, tutorials, documentation. The the output, your your output is supposed to have a larger effect, either more meaningful on a smaller number of people or just, you know, effect on a larger number of people. Um, and so generally i think it's it's just much better to play with your cards open because it's much easier to have that effect uh i guess the question for you is how do you define the difference between a junior developer and a senior developer Mm, yeah this is a good one this one's come up a lot at like uh you know a tech meetups and that kind of thing um so 
right? There's 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 a couple different uh, sort of frameworks that come to mind. So uh, you could look at hard years on the task or whatever. So it's like, well, you know, you couldn't be a, a whatever developer if you didn't have at least three years of this or that. So people will start to draw these lines for themselves about where they're at. Um, when they work for a bigger company, they're sort of titled in, right? So that's kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, another level is just like how you fit into the rubric of some big company. Um, you know, there's SDE level four or whatever, you know, at, at Google, <laughs> or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I look at it as how much capability can they handle? And going back to some of those coding school grads, uh, uh, now still friends of mine, I've stayed in contact. In fact, they've kept in touch both ways, et cetera. Like they're um, highly motivated people who could handle a whole lot of stuff. Right. And the coding was a means to an end, but they were doing so much else along with it. They themselves became so much more valuable. Right. And so they actually even didn't age out in a software developer's trajectory, even. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they kind of leapfrogged on the career pathing a bit. But nonetheless, uh, when some of them took these high title positions, they were like in a junior version of it and they were gilded by four or five others who had done that role for five to 10 plus years, mm. you know? So, so that's kind of like, even though they got there quicker, they're still kind of like the junior teacher at an elementary school or whatever, you know, like they were still <laughs> right. uh, young in their career, but they had a lot going on. They were managing a lot of stuff, doing a lot of things. Um, but then if you, so that's, I, I just, I just went down the managerial path, right? I guess I went, if I went back down the engineering excellence path, you know, where you're going to be an engineer your whole career, um, it, it's kind of a similar thing. Like you said earlier, it's being able to um, manage and do more and more things along the way and have more autonomy as you grow. Um, and then, like you said, it's then your effect on people around you. And so, um, I mean, we don't have lifelong employment anymore, so it's not up to any one company to solve that for an employee, but mm-hmm. it's more about how that individual then makes the jumps in their career path. I mean, I've looked at a lot of CVs, and a lot of people are not even staying four years at a company very often at all. Um, some people will go just like two, two, three years is a kind of a normal time at a company now. So to me, it's also about how that individual, what kind of next gig do they jump to? You know, what kind of, mm-hmm. are they making lateral still or are they moving up or in sideways and up, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah. Right. You know, so um I mean, if I guess it goes down to the, the company doesn't is not helping that individual get there, then they're going to do that anyways. And that's kind of what you see, like a lot more turnover these days than, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people stayed at jobs forever, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, not a not a lot of gold watches, I think, in um, <laughs> right. startups, yeah. <laughs> pensions. Yeah, um, no, that, that, that makes sense uh, for to the extent that you've worked with, um, I mean, I guess it's not limited to junior engineers, but have has this something that you've seen? Um, you've managed uh, a lot of engineers. I think you said, you know, you, like VideoAmp, I think you had like over 60 um, in, the, in, in your org. Uh, is imposter syndrome something that you encountered a bunch? Um, I am aware with, the concept of this and I've tried it on myself just to check myself. And, uh, I think, I think the way I get around it is a self deprecating nature because I don't claim to be the best at 
anything I'm doing. And I expect the people around me to, you know, be excellent at what they do. Uh, and in fact, I look to a lot of the people around me and, and learn from them. And I try and stay humble. Uh, humility, I think, helps there. But yeah, I think uh, it's unnatural to say that anybody that, um, you know, kind of continues in their career doesn't think that they might be in over their head at times, you know, or in the mm-hmm. wrong seat or whatever. But um, to me, I, I tackle it with just a... Um, um, humility and trying to be empathetic. And really I tried to do one-on-ones with engineering org until it was out of my hands. Like it was so huge, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, that's kind of been my approach to it um, is to uh, understand what people work on, understand their challenges. Um, and when I was commuting a lot, I would listen to YouTube videos at one and a half or two times speed on a lot of these topics and sometimes help people out even, even though I didn't, I'm not writing Scala right now for that project. Uh, there's something in Spark that now fixes it or whatever, you know? So like <laughs> I was definitely very yeah. engaged with people uh, and that's kind of how I got around it. It was at least trying to put in the effort to understand what everybody in the org is doing and understanding that I'm certainly by far not the best at it. Um, and those two things helped me get through that. Yeah, nice. I mean, it, and, and is that is that something you've seen? Um, I guess like, I guess what I'm curious about is for developers that that you've seen grow like what what types of like what types of um i guess perspective have they had or or uh skills did they use to like get through it and yes. and I, I guess i'm sort of like curious about this in terms of like imposter syndrome too like have you seen have you seen it like click for any developers um like any yeah any examples of of something like that yeah, definitely. I would say um, the type of person um, that's excelling here, um, we would do a lot of one-on-ones, right? Like you always get a one-on-one at least every couple weeks in your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ones who were really bought in would come to the meeting with a, a notebook and a pen, and they actually would read the notes from the last time, usually before we start. And they're actually in charge and owning their own uh, pathway, Okay meaning they're writing the goals down that they're setting for themselves. And those mm-hmm. are aligning with their management, et cetera. And I'm not trying to get all like managerially or whatever. This is for the benefit of the individual. And they come prepared with it like a process, right? And um, that one-on-one is tailoring how things are going and tracking against their goals and see if they want to make any changes to things. Sometimes the big revelation about, I think I want to get into product or whatever, like ultimately it comes out in one of these things, you know? So totally. it's a very... Uh, sort of healthy thing to do, which is to take ownership of your own growth at the company. And then by bringing that notepad to the meeting, you and your manager are on your page, your same page. See what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So like the most industrious and some of the best engineers I've worked with growth wise, were just super motivated on that front and they kept the notes, right? Mm-hmm. It's for them. Yeah. It's their meeting <laughs> and they hold themselves to an account, to a standard, you know? I mean, you could just sit there and talk about flossing all day long and you know, this and that, but it's like, you know, who's going to actually really put in the time, you know, and, not, you know, there literally is a varying degree of effort across the spectrum of people. Um, but those are some of the folks that I've seen own it the most is the ones that are actually so bought in that they journal the meeting for their growth, their one-on-ones. And then, of course, their quarterlies as well, where they're setting, you know, this next quarter, I'm going to learn rest like, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we think we might use it over here, maybe, you know, and the company's like, cool, 
all right, you know, like, et cetera. So it's, um, it's who's bought into continuous improvement, lifelong learning. I mean, when you work in tech, you've got to like continuously relearn. It's just a fact of life. So um, it's kind of like you're um, a good gilded professional if you're already bought into a process of, of that and making goals mm-hmm. around it and, you know, and trying to apply it. You know, there I go again, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, love it. Yeah, in fact, I I absolutely love that you brought up one-on-ones. That's a topic that um, is really important for me. I would say it's kind of the core of Superstruct's management um, philosophy, particularly for remote devs. I mean, I know it's it's really useful even before remote became popular, but I feel like remote is almost impossible without a good culture of one-on-ones and for for superstruct it's it's weekly um and you kind of bring up the the engineers who who really take ownership of that meeting they really do treat it as a resource for themselves they come prepared they're trying to get as much out of it as possible um on the flip side and i've heard a lot of engineering managers uh complain about uh, engineers who come to that meeting without anything to talk about. They they really don't see it as valuable for themselves. They really don't take advantage of it. And it winds up being a little bit painful for the engineering manager to try and like draw things out of the the engineer. So it's almost like trying to get, you know, blood from a, a stone. And I completely echo um your uh, feelings about the the engineers that that are really successful. Um, managers do want their engineers to grow. You kind of mentioned this before, like like if you if you help an engineer outgrow your company, yes, selfishly that can be bad. Like you you just lost someone who you know the company was was depending on to get things done, but. It, it's it, at the other, you know, on the, on, on, on the other hand, you've also just really accelerated that, that person and you've helped them become way more capable um, than before. I mean, I've definitely had this, you know, remote engineer, like I hire them from all over the world. Uh, I had an engineer in, in Gaza and uh, after working with me for like two years, he got an offer at Amazon in Berlin and I was so happy for him uh you know losing a great engineer wasn't great but that felt good but he was always you know he was always good in the the one-on-ones right he he let me know where he wanted to get to and i wanted to help him and so it was much easier for me to give him the type of work that he wanted and i think that's not unique to me i don't think it's unique to you i think coming to a one-on-one knowing what you want to do next and and what your target is and 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 working on that and taking ownership i think is probably one of the better things you can do yeah 100 percent um when you when you when you were running one-on-ones like how did you how did you run them like what what did you tell the engineers like what did you want to get out of it like what was that process like for for you yeah good question i mean it's similar to like the interview pattern where i mean really you just um give the individual all of the floor um, mm-hmm. now it's interesting too, because, um, you could, you know, it's usually about a 15 to 30 minute format. I like 30 because it takes a little time to warm up and open up a little bit and you're getting everything under the sun from the, 
individual, right? Like it's like, how are you doing, et cetera? Those, how are you tracking to goal, et cetera? And then there's like an open mic time where it's like people just talk about whatever. It's like a 360 degree review. They could be talking about peers or their own management. That's why I like skip level one-on-ones a lot. It's like, mm-hmm. like, not that I don't trust your manager. I want to hear from you though. And it's like um, some of the most important decisions had to be made from learning stuff that way. I hate to say it, but I hate surprises. And yeah. sometimes you have people who just aren't happy. Like some people give up working for like a quarter and like <laughs> in some teams, they don't notice it. Well, yeah. actually in a small company, everybody notices it. And when people are like, Hey, I think Jenkins over there is not happy or whatever, you know, it's like, um, and I don't mean the CICD server, but, <laughs> but, um, sure. right. Uh, right. So some of the things come out and then you realize you talk to Jenkins and they're like, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to take off and travel for a year. I'm just, I, I don't like tech anymore or whatever, you know, people just have random things happen. And so by one-on-one with everybody, you start to learn like to get the pulse of the team, et cetera. But also, um, you know, I keep going back to one-on-ones, right. But, um, but by letting the individual talk, uh, that's where um, it, I really let it sort of uh, blossom from. You know, it's interesting though, because I also, um, when the we get to the lull of the conversation or we're like towards the, the tail end, I'll talk about what I'm working on as well with people. Um, mm-hmm. Literally like, here's the hack project I've been working on, or here's some R&D we're doing and it's going to become a project next year or whatever. So like, I like to share what I'm doing as a sort of cap to the conversation, but not as the focus ever. Um, because I don't know, I mean, it's my only time to really communicate with people generally one-to-one so mm-hmm. like the last five percent or the last couple minutes usually i'll I'll give brief updates as well uh, after i hear from the individual hear how their personal stuff team uh, everything etc you know yeah that makes a lot of sense so do, so how would you recommend an engineer approach on one-on-one i mean i know like you know for them to think about it for their as as their time and and their resource but do you have a sort of like a short piece of advice for for how an engineer should be treating a one-on-one yeah definitely i mean on the one hand it's um it's uh i want to say a light at the end of the tunnel but it's it's you knowing you've got FaceTime with someone who's advocating for you on a regular basis and by Mm -hmm. having that you can probably get away with sitting on things a day or two or three but if you have issues you at least know as a as a minimum like you're probably going to have that come up Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like your bucket for open items as a, as a team member and employee, et cetera. Um, so right. That, that, that's where people are coming prepared, you know, and some people come with a blank slate every time where they're like, I don't have any problems, you know, I'm all good. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. but, um, really there should be aspirations as part of that list. Right. Like we already talked about that. Um, but for me, uh, by knowing that you have that, and, and you know, like you said, it could be weekly, right? Like weekly one-on-one is not out of the ordinary at all. Um, it's pretty typical. And so it allows you to sort of bucket your whole thing, like um, that's out of band maybe from some of your day-to-day, et cetera. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like we said earlier, just to come, let me put it this way, come prepared with your asks. Like life is driven by lots of unreasonable requests right at the time they may seem that. unreasonable to you but you're like scared to ask or whatever but then you're like holy crap the company has a program for teaching people rust or colang mm-hmm. or whatever and i didn't know until i asked and there's a you know a stipend for two grand a year for continuous learning uh, of course that should have been offered to you when you signed but uh, you know what i'm saying like it doesn't hurt to ask for things at all yeah. you know and so Really, that's kind of part of, you know, like 
in you pushing for your growth. People will do that in one-on-ones. They're like, I'm thinking about this or that. And you're like, yeah, let me find out. And and I've had people be allowed to grow because I found them a mentor who would uh, take them under their wing. You know, so there's a little bit of horse trading too between people. Some people, part of their growth is to uh, advance upwards. Other people's growth is to like mentor other people, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And those are all stretch goals. Those are things that happen in the boundaries or like outbounds from like the company's like delivery quarter over quarter or month over month or whatever it is, right? So anyways, (laughs) that's kind of how it happens. You know, it just uh, comes together from people having a strong indication of what their asks are. And it's okay to ask for things that may be out of the ordinary, you know, right. What's the worst that could happen. Right. You know, so that's, (laughs) I I encourage a lot of people to do that, you know, Uh, like shoot, you know, shoot for higher, even, even in comp, you know, like again, back to the both sides of the table thing. Um, People tend to round down too much for comp, you know, round up, (laughs) see what happens, you know, uh, Anyhow, no, completely agree with that. Yeah. And, and, and you know, an, an example from from one of my clients is uh, I, I, a QA engineer uh, in the one on one said that he wanted to start doing front end development. Um, and if he never said that, uh, we just would have treated him like QA forever. But we were able to give him the, the coding challenges that we give to front end devs. And he actually aced it. He did amazingly well. And I think that's going to be a, a really good trajectory for him. So it's really important to to, to control your your career um, uh, path like that. Uh, hey, Dave, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Um, so if you want to hear the CTO interview series I mentioned uh, or check out some of my um, uh, blogs or podcasts, uh, check out doctorknowledge.com. That's dr and then the word knowledge.com. That's where I have some of my media and other links out to social media and things like that. Also, uh, my new co is called Vidiate. um, And it's like the letter V and the word ideate. uh, And our actual um, corporate site is .io. So vidiate.io, you can check out some of our demo reels and look at our capabilities. Uh, That's the two places you can find me. Awesome. I will put uh, links to all of that in the show notes. And perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks a lot, David. It was really fun. Pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Recruiting at tech events can be one of the best ways to find and hire senior software engineers. Unfortunately, it's easy to make simple mistakes and wind up with no leads. Grab my free 12-point recruiting checklist to maximize your sponsorship investment at superstruct.tech slash event dash recruiting dash checklist.